Powerlineblog.com and produced by Ricochet.com. This is the Three Whiskey Happy Hour with your bartenders, Steve Hayward, John Yu, and Powerline's international woman of mystery, Lucretia. Sometimes you gotta give in and let that whiskey flow when you're feeling lost down in low. Well, hello, everybody. That's not Steve Hayward's normal trademark introduction. It's John Yu, one of the three co-hosts of the Three Whiskey Happy Hour. And I'm joined by my usual partners in Italian travel, Steve Hayward and Lucretia. Say hi, everybody. It's our post-Thanksgiving extravaganza. Hi, everybody. (laughs) Hi, everybody. Good morning. I hope everybody was thankful yesterday because I sure was. Mostly for going to Italy with John and Steve. Because we had such a great time. <laughs> yeah, now I'm thankful for lots of things, but we did have a lovely time with our friends there. So let's start off by our uh, any uh, Thanksgiving notes or observations. One thing I was curious about asking the both of you was, do followers of Strauss celebrate Thanksgiving any differently than the rest of humanity? <laughs> Steve. <laughs> Steve. Well, how um, did you celebrate Thanksgiving? And was there a special... Straussian Claremont touch to the turkey. Uh, well, <laughs> now that you mention it, it was slowly smoked on a rotisserie uh, instead of uh, you know in an oven, which usually oh, kills cool. turkeys. Uh, and then I may, I use the oven to make popovers. Uh, uh, now you know the one thing about how I don't know if Strauss celebrated himself. Leo Strauss celebrated Thanksgiving in the usual American way, although I suspect maybe he did. But the important thing would have been this. Uh, I'd have to go look in the archives to find out when Gunsmoke was broadcast. Strauss never missed Gunsmoke. It was his favorite TV show. He thought it dramatized uh, an accessible uh, uh, portal to good and evil, and it was his favorite American show. So uh, if it was on Thursday nights, and I don't know when Gunsmoke was aired, and I didn't think to check uh, until just this moment, uh, he would have made sure that uh, all the pie was finished and done with and the dishes stacked up so that he could watch Gunsmoke. Really? Wow. You did not know that. <laughs> okay. I, I did not uh, mourn indigenous people yesterday. Not even once. Not I didn't even think about indigenous people yesterday. Uh, so I guess that you could say was a Straussian uh, moment or non-moment for me all day long. Instead, I, so, so here's my new conspiracy theory. Let me put my tinfoil hat on that American foods are so uh, so infested with pesticides and chemicals and things like that, that, that uh, it's causing all sorts of health problems. And so after being in Italy and eating my fill and drinking my fill and, and not gaining a single ounce and feeling great the whole time, I decided to come home and, and, and just do everything in the world from scratch. So I made bread with I ordered international. I bought, ordered a bunch of things to be sent inter, from international sources because I don't trust even organic things here. And I made bread, and I made. Uh, I had a, a turkey straight from the farm. I made my own pie crust with my own Amish butter. You know all that kind of crazy stuff. So uh, <laughs> it sounds like I'm sort of some sort of crunchy 
uh, conservative now, Steve, but um, I'm just trying it for a while to see how it works. Well, I did do one other thing of note, which uh, viewers won't, well, I'll post on the show notes. I, I brought this to dinner. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, <laughs> uh, what we're laughing wow. at listeners is uh, I had a bottle of Trump 2015 Meritage Monticello red wine, which I uh, brought and opened up for dinner, uh, thinking it's probably past its prime. <laughs> uh, and actually, it, uh, it had lost its fruit, but it had an unusual flavor to it. It was, uh, and I'm told, by the way, he doesn't have anything to do with the winery. He just licensed his name like he does to so many other things. But it was actually an interesting wine, I have to say. So, so was it made of Monticello? Uh, yeah, near there. It's uh, it's actually the old Kluge winery, which uh, oh. is kind of interesting. The Kluge family, if I remember this correctly, are the people who brought us Mars candy. And they'd start a winery and I, they co-branded it with Trump at some point here 15 years ago. And so there so, it is. I've had it sitting around for a while. Is it uh, so, a, wine, a wine that doesn't get better with age and, and <laughs> doesn't doesn't pair well with any other foods? <laughs> I do have a whiskey. I have a whiskey. Ooh, uh, yes. So whiskey last my night. son, a week ago, today, yesterday, whatever, last Saturday, um, got his black belt in jujitsu and so wow, congratulations yeah it was and and so i was trying to figure out what do i do i went to the, the our local liquor store champagne they had a bottle of what's called i think it's called little book and it's 114 proof Ooh, wow. and it is in fact it, i didn't even want to tell you how much i spent on it but i needed to get him something special so it was the smoothest American whiskey I've ever had in my life. It's just wow. un unbelievable. But it's very, it's even more limited than the Booker's um, limited edition cast mm. strength that they put out a couple of times a year. So that was fun. Um, uh -huh. to, wow. And we had a few, a few shots, a few neat whiskeys of that on um, at the end of pumpkin pie. Wow! Oh, wow! Well, I might have a whiskey that I could recommend for the next uh, next year's pumpkin pie. I um, yes. I picked up in Vienna uh, visiting uh, Mario. Oh, no, no. Remember, we banned Austrian whiskeys. They were so bad. <sighs> yes, I, I know. Remember, but yes. I have the advanced copy of the fall edition of the European Conservative. And one of the great things about the European Conservative, it has whiskey reviews in every episode or every issue. And, and it's by a German guy. Uh, and he reviews Aberfeldy 18 year old. And he only gives an 80 out of 100 points, which is, you know, kind of a. Uh, decent, but not off the chart. But it, uh, it it sounds like as a Highland whiskey, it sounds like something Lucretia would approve of. Uh, he And he, he concludes the review by saying this whiskey is recommended for dessert or as a companion for long autumn evenings. So I'll leave out all the other stuff in between, but it's a Steve, nice review. <clears throat> Steve, so this European conservative magazine, it runs book reviews of your books. Yes. It runs reviews of your whiskeys. <laughs> you, right. you really are the guy you're you're pseudonymously the guy who's editing that magazine because we've never seen him in person there's no proof he exists you you just posted a podcast episode interviewing him which was just you talking to yourself yeah that's <laughs> <laughs> John, he's like he's like you're letting out the he secret is the european steve hayward <laughs> i can't even imagine what that would look like a european steve hayward okay well let's get uh, to the uh i got to we got to move on to the yeah. substance of uh, the podcast. And so uh, we thought we would start out with any final election postmortems. Uh, several things have uh, been bouncing around the commentary on the midterms. One is, is it all Rick Scott's fault? Was Lucretia's favorite Senator Mitch McConnell really once again 
the evil genius that saved the Republican Party for even from even worse defeats. Um, Before we go on, <laughs> John, I just okay. want to bring up a, a tweet I saw. It was um, if if a Republican red wave spelled the end of democracy, and if the reaction to Dobbs was the oh, yeah. uh, the thing that brought people out to to vote against the Republican red wave, then can we say that it was Samuel Alito who saved democracy? <laughs> that's a good one you have to think that one through for a minute i had to get that out there though no but that was yeah. that was the second thing out there is that uh did the media overstate the effect of dobbs and then the third uh yeah. explanation out there is how much of this is donald trump's fault so yeah uh, so uh Steve. yeah we so you know our uh, uh you know our mutual colleague at aei mark Thiessen, had a a column in the Washington Post, surprisingly harsh for Mark. I mean, I don't know how well you know Mark, but he's a very nice guy uh, and not usually want to go on the political attack. And boy, he has a scathing column that makes a pretty strong case that Rick Scott, who was in charge of the Republican Senatorial Committee, what that means is he's responsible for raising the money and even more so than McConnell, who has his own PAC, uh, you know, doling out money for campaigns. And he, and I remember in August or maybe September, Scott was over in Italy on vacation on a luxury yacht, which is not what you ought to do in an election year. It, it shows a certain lack of commitment to what's urgent. And one of the reasons, and I remember at the time I was saying to Lucretia that we saw these news reports that the Republicans were canceling ad buys in Arizona and several other states. And I thought maybe they're playing possum and are going to sneak up. Well, it turns out they didn't have the money. And they canceled the ad buys because Scott hadn't raised the money. And he'd spent a lot of it supposedly on himself. Uh, I, I, you know, I won't vouch for everything that Mark claims in his article. How do you spend it? Sorry, sorry, Steve. How do you spend it on yourself? Uh, you know, I'm not quite sure. He doesn't give the details of that. But uh, I, I do know in the past that, uh, I mean, I know I mean, in past you can't, cases. I'm sorry. You, you well, can't use campaign funds to go on a luxury cruise. No, no, I didn't mean spending it on self in a corrupt way like that. But you spend it on things like you know adding to your own staff or or you know having appointing staff who are you know publicizing you, Rick Scott, rather than actually working out on the campaign trail. I mean, I remember. Yeah, yeah, when... I think the uh, the allegation is that uh, you know they spent a lot of money, for example, promoting Rick Scott's you know plan for America yeah. and doing Rick Scott campaign events and not spending any money on the candidates. Yeah, right. And you know the when when Gingrich took over the uh, I think it was in 94 when he took over the house and they looked at um I actually remember the congressman then running the the, the house version of this for House Republicans. And you know they spent tons of money the House Republicans did before Gingrich on you know tchotchkes and things to send out to donors and members and friends and they had big picture galleries and the and, and you know, uh, so Gingrich cleaned house and said, that's not what our money's for. I, I think something like this may have happened. That's one of the allegations. And in fact, McConnell, <laughs> I do this just to twist Lucretia's tail. McConnell, you know, did the best he could to come in late with his own leadership pack uh, to fill the void best he could, which wasn't enough. Like um, up so there in Alaska? He did put a lot of money into Alaska for Lisa Murkowski. Yeah, okay. I, you know, we could talk Sorry. about it. Yeah, I know. Hey, but but wait, uh, before you go on. Before you go on, did you guys see the poll that came out? I think yesterday or the day, probably the day before, uh, that says that something on the order of seventy-four percent of Republicans are disgusted with the uh, Republican leadership in Congress. <laughs> I'm surprised it's not higher than that, but uh, uh, yeah. I think it was seventy-four. It was in the seventies, and then even um, independents were seventy-one percent. And then why they asked this, but Democrats, Democrats were like sixty-nine percent, whatever. Yeah, of Republican well, Christian, what? what? 
Lucretia, why do you think that uh, the Republican Party and conservatives did so badly in the midterms? And do you think it was Dobbs or you think it was Trump or? No, I think it was the um, that once again, Democrats were willing to remember 6.1 percent higher Republican than Democratic vote totals overall. But Democrats were smart enough to figure out where they needed the votes and yeah. got those votes, even though they didn't get more votes than Republicans. So, so in some ways, the polls were not really wrong when they predicted a red wave. Had 6.1% just sort of played out like it usually does, then we would have seen a red wave. I mean, that's correct, right, Steve? You're the you're the yeah. numbers guy here. If yeah, it had yeah, played yeah. out like we normally expect it to. But, you know, what they did was they they got votes in the places where they needed it. And then if you look at some of the results, especially in, in House races, some Republicans just won by huge, huge numbers. And I mean, more so than you even expect incumbents to do so. And so there's a looking at the entire picture, there's a lot more Republican votes where they're not needed and a lot more Democratic votes where they are. And that's, yeah, that I think, gets, a big one. Now, that has a lot of ex explanations, too. Yeah. Vote manipulation, early balloting, ballot harvesting, et cetera. But anyway, sorry, Steve, go ahead. Well, Steve. it's usually it's usually the other way around. It's usually Democrats who waste votes because they're more concentrated in urban areas. Uh, but I think what look, I mean, now that all the dust is settled and almost all the votes are counted, we still have, you know, 100,000 votes in California or more. Yeah. Uh, but I think it'd say two things. If you look at previous wave elections going back to 1980, uh, oh, well, let me start this way. This election actually was pretty close, and all, all the close races tipped the other way. So Adam Laxalt in Nevada. Uh, Blake Masters, uh, you know, he lost by three or four points or five points, but, you know, he ran a, a strong race, outspent seven to one, as you pointed out, because of Scott McConnell didn't have the resources. Um, but, you know, in wave elections, you often find that you know, the uh, what makes the real froth on the top, the frosting on the cake is a whole lot of races that break closely in the same direction. So I think in 1980, the Republicans won, I think, you know, five or six of the 12 Senate seats they won that year by a combined total of only 50,000 votes spread over five states, five or six states. 1986, when the Democrats took the Senate back, same result. They, they won five or six seats by a combined total of 50,000 votes. And what happened this year is that Republicans fell short on uh, on close races that you know were arguably winnable, but just fell short, not by a lot though. And then the aggregate, as you point out, uh, Republicans the the you know we don't have proportional representation. Be interesting to see how liberals respond to their favorite talking point about majorities, right? Um, yeah. yeah. I think the Can I just mention about Arizona really quick? Sure. Yeah, that's that's what I was going to ask. What happened? I don't know if you guys happened? have paid attention, but they have not. The the attorney general will not certify the right. Arizona. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. 
More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, guys. It is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from, with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Arizona election. There are now three counties, including my own, that are um, refusing to certify their own elections. In, and it gets a little complicated. But basically, what's really happened in Arizona, if you get down to it, is that all of the election shall we call it incompetence? I'll be nice for a mm. moment and call it incompetence. Yeah. The, the machines that didn't work, the, the uh, poll, polling workers that wouldn't allow uh, people whose ballots wouldn't get read in one place to even cast provisional ballots where they were supposed to in another polling place where, um, you know, just on and on and on. Almost all of those incompetencies occurred in the most conservative precincts in Maricopa County, which is, of course, 60% of the total uh, population of Arizona. That's where Phoenix is located. And so if you think about that for a moment, how is it possible that all of the incompetency in Arizona elections occurred in the conservative precincts in the largest, most populous county in the, in the state? And that's yeah. why you've now got three three counties refusing to certify their own electoral votes and the attorney general, the state attorney general, refusing to certify the election. There will be an automatic recount because mm. the, the vote clo- the vote total between Carrie Lake and uh, and the twit is so. Oh, I mean, Katie Hobbs is so close. <laughs> yeah, I'm just, yeah. just going to refuse to call her. She's so dumb. It's not even funny. She's so dumb. And her voice is like fingernails on a chalkboard. Have you heard her speak? Uh, uh, no, because she wouldn't say anything. About, she like, she wouldn't debate. Yeah, she wouldn't. Yeah, she was, she, hide, she, hiding out in, well, she was hiding in Biden's basement, wasn't she? It seemed like it. Yeah, she was. <laughs> God only knows what she was doing with him. Yeah. Yeah. Wasn't, Sorry, wouldn't no. the solution be to have the Republicans in the state legislature run an, an investigation? You yeah, the problem was they, they ran an investigation last time in the Maricopa County uh, electoral system, call it that, the people that, that run the elections are just so corrupt, they wouldn't allow uh, the, the, the uh, Senate was pushing for uh, an investigation into what happened in Maricopa County, and they just they just stonewalled it last time in 2020. And so my guess is they'll probably do the same thing. If you've seen that despicable, it, how funny that his name is Bill Gates, uh, <laughs> electoral guy in charge of um, elections in Maricopa County. It's just he's vile. He's he's one of those elites. I you know how how dare you challenge me? How dare you say I don't know how to do my job? How dare? Well, because you didn't, and you're incompetent, or you're Worse than incompetent, you're you're um, purposely trying to manipulate the electoral outcome. There's only two possibilities: incompetent or done purposefully. There's really no other explanation. You yeah. can't chalk it up to coincidence. 
Hmm. Yeah. So, well, well uh, oh, go ahead, John. Well, I was going to say, Steve, what do you think about the? Uh, you talked about Rick Scott in the Senate. What do you think about uh, Dobbs and its effect, or Trump oh. and his effect on the election? Yeah. Well, so I think the Dobbs angle is overstated. I mean, I think it did motivate some suburban women and some independent voters. But if you step back for a moment, you have to remember something that you had: DeSantis, DeWine in Ohio, a camp in Georgia, Abbott in Texas. They all signed, I think in those four states and maybe elsewhere, very tough, restrictive uh, legislation on abortion, and they all won by landslides. Uh, and so I think that, uh, in other words, if this had been such a big and decisive issues for swing voters and independent voters, you would have seen their vote totals narrow, I think. And mm. if you look closely, I'll bet that extrapolates to some other places. I think the uh, because the liberals in the media, but I repeat myself, are so invested in abortion as such a central issue that they're trying to work a Jedi mind trick on us. Um, and I think, uh, and I thought all along that uh, although it might be a factor in this election, as the issue starts to settle out on a state by state basis, it will be a less of an issue in future elections, although the media and the liberals will still scream about it. But I think uh, it was a one off and a very small one in this election. I think a bigger factor could be the Trump overhang. You know, I was saying for a while, I still think this, that. Uh, well, it gets a little complicated, but elections are about the future, stupid, like the economy, and that the threat to democracy theme and the whole January 6th business was not really going to cut that much ice with high inflation and all the rest. Uh, but I think the, the converse is true, which is uh, Trump and some of the candidates that were tied to Trump, fairly or not, uh, uh, like, you know, Mastriano in Pennsylvania, uh, I think think that that was also backwards looking and that turned off some voters. And there does look to be some um, data showing that what might have been a wider Republican margin in those close races was in fact blunted by a, a statistically significant number of independent voters uh, who said, no, we, we really want to put this whole Trump uh, election uh, uh, fraud business from uh, 2020 election behind us. And so, I, you know, I, again, I, that can be overstated, but I think it's genuine. And again, look at Pennsylvania. Mastriano got killed in that election against a pretty good candidate in the ordinary sense and that Josh Shapiro guy, uh, whereas Oz nearly won. I mean, you know, he ran a strong race and he nearly won. He should have won. Uh, <laughs> Lucretia is quite right, a completely flawed candidate. Um uh, but still, you notice that the the more Trumpy you were, like Bolduc in New Hampshire and Mastriano in Pennsylvania, the worse you did. Lucretia's yeah, making again, faces. What was it? I mean, Bolduc was outspent yep. seventy to one. Seventy yeah, to sure. one. Okay, come on. I mean, at some point, I, I don't think money is the be all and end all of these things, you know. But if you can't even get your message out there, yeah. because and, and at some point, the seventy the 70 uh, factor becomes irrelevant, but because people stop paying t attention altogether. You know, I think mm. that's what happened to a great extent when Blake Masters finally got some money to spend on yeah. ads here in, in Arizona. Um, yeah, by then, who wants, I don't, it, you know, I just automatic mute, automatic change of channel, automatic, whatever. <laughs> I, I can't be the only one who does that. Right. So yeah. I, that, that's the only thing, but I do agree with Steve. I, I think the, the whole, uh Dobbs thing was absolutely overblown we know who was going to go out and vote for it for sure but yeah those women I, the funny thing I saw is that uh somebody said that the the it comes down to this Re Republicans uh ideal voter is the non-college educated guy who's made a, a really decent living for himself being a plumber et cetera et cetera 
and the perfect democratic voter is the adjunct professor scraping by uh, teaching three different classes at the university and living in his uh, <laughs> dumpy little apartment thing along those lines, you know, <laughs> because, you know, college is the, probably the worst thing that ever happened to this uh, country of ours, if you want to know the truth, at least so in the last 30 years. So two, I'll leave two, it at two, that. two points uh, to follow up on the uh, Lucretia's commentary on the uh, hardworking graduate student, the University of California, Berkeley, where Steve and I work, is oh. uh, currently undergoing a strike by the graduate yeah. students. And so we have uh, picket lines around the campus. Uh, uh, it's, it's a question I was, I actually was wondering whether this means education will improve or <laughs> decrease if uh, well, you know, the, the eighth year PhD student who makes a full-time living being a TA can't uh, refuses to work. And then the second, but the more serious point on the Lucretia's point on the money is it does um, maybe raise one question about the uh, Trump re-election bid and the, and the competitors who are not clearing the field uh, is that a lot of the big money supporters for President Trump are declaring that they're not going to support him this time around. Yeah. Um, so really, you know, several of the billionaire classes have already uh, publicly announced. Uh, there's a fellow named Griffin who runs Citadel Securities. Oh, and, right. Yeah. Uh, he mm -hmm. announced that he, he was a big Trump supporter. He's announced he's not going to support Trump this time. And there have been two or three others. Does that signal that the primary is going to actually be more of a drag out in the mud fight and not a coronation of President Trump? I, I do think it's going Appreciate to be more of a drag out fight. What I don't know what Trump's going to do. Uh, the smartest thing for him to do would be to to bow out gracefully and put his uh, you know be a little bit of a kingmaker on somebody and and then throw his support so that his supporters would go over and then the person could uh, do what they needed to do to distance themselves from them. I mean, it, any Republican who runs anything like a Trump-like campaign is going to suffer badly at the hands of the media and everybody else. But I, you know, uh, there's. Trump's speech that he gave announcing that he was coming out, we discussed this briefly last time, tried to be forward looking. It, it really did, but yeah. he lost the audience before it was over. You know, well, I, it, I went on. it was an hour long, it. wasn't it? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Hour and I, I just don't think he has quite the same appeal, except with his hardcore people. We want somebody like Trump who will go in and, and call it clean house, upset the cookie jar again. But I don't think Trump can win. I, you know, I really don't. Uh, maybe no. things change, especially well, no, this after is, this last election. This is, this really is, this is earth moving, uh, <laughs> no, listeners. I know. That no, I said this last time. Lucretia has jumped the, ship on Trump. Well, the, the funny no. thing is, is uh, and this is a rare instance where I'm not entirely, but kind of on the other side of the question from Lucretia. Oh. This is, we're really upside down here. Now, look, I mean, I, I think he's a flawed candidate too, but uh, a couple None of, things here. I, I, I do too, but none of, I mean, I would support him a hundred percent. There's no doubt about that, but I'm afraid that, that, the things are stacked up too hard against him, I guess yeah, is the my, best way to put here's it. Here's my point of disagreement, um, of mild disagreement at, at, you know, this is, I won't say it's theoretical, but I'm looking out at this and I'm thinking, yeah, he'd be better off if he didn't run and became a kingmaker. On the other hand, what if he's indicted? Uh, and also, I mean, better if he, uh, I'll say this other wrinkle to it, which is better he withdraw at the beginning of the process than after losing a couple of primaries. When he looks like a loser and, you know, he hates that worse than anything and he might, who knows what he might do. He might run third party. Well, like, Iowa says he's, he's what, 17 points uh, underwater? Right, but that's, that's still yes. a long way off yet. It's but, early. I get it. 
but you know, there's always the possibility that he runs third party like Teddy Roosevelt in 1912. And look at how that worked out for us a hundred years later. We're still suffering from that uh, fit of egotism. Yeah, got on... the administrative state because of that. That's right. Uh, and, you know, anyway, uh, so, but if he's indicted, I, part of me says, you know, if he's indicted, uh, never mind the legal merits of it. Uh, it it uh, the larger message it sends is that in fact the deep state or whatever the administrative state will go after you and punish you. Uh, and 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 that in other words, there's a case for him saying, "Damn it, I'm not going to give into this," uh, yeah. and going forward with the and campaign. I support that. You know, I I have some sympathy with that too. I mean, the, the you know the problem is is the the you know the establishment went out to destroy Trump from moment one, and he stood up to him in you know a lot of very admirable ways. Other things he did totally yep. wrong, I think, but never mind all that for now. Uh, and so I'm kind of thinking to myself, you know, he better hang in there for a while, uh, otherwise it looks like the uh, the establishment has won. Uh, mm-hmm. And you know, I don't want that to happen, even if he's the flawed messenger and flawed vehicle for fighting back against it. So. so let me ask, before you move on, I want to ask John about this. So it seems that from the, you know, from my, my blonde moment here, that the problem <laughs> with all of these uh, special investigations with these uh, criminal prosecutions based upon politics rather than actual crimes, the the double standard in applying the rule of law really tends to center around the Washington, D.C., uh, judicial circuits, call it that, you know, the the DC uh, federal circuit, all of that. If you could get these, thinking even about what's happening with uh, Fauci and and uh, stupid Pisaki out of, I think it's Missouri <laughs> that's suing them. If you can get judges away from Washington, DC, juries away from Washington, DC, you're not going to get either uh, indictments or um, convictions for pro-Trump people, or the opposite, like you know what happened to uh, what's his name, John, um, the 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 inspe- the special investigator, the guy investigating, I'm, the special I'm, counsel, the special counsel, not the new one, the um, um, the guy ooh, with the Bob, beard, Bob Mueller. Oh no, 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 no. after him, Durham. Durham, about Durham John Durham, Durham yes. Oh, yeah. uh, so he didn't get a, a single conviction, right? Yeah. Because yeah. he never got a change of venue. Is that impossible to get a change of venue? Uh, Am actually, I making it too simple? No, 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 no. Actually, there, there's, you know, people argue with some reason that um, the fact that these are based in Washington, D.C. means you have a very Democratic jury pool, you know, very Democratic population from which the jury is pulled. Gosh, you know, I think this is one of the protections the founders put in the Constitution, though, <laughs> because remember from the Declaration, they were afraid of uh, uh, colonials being snatched up and taken to London mm-hmm. for trial. So they put right. in there that you had to be tried, you know, before a jury of your peers in the uh, in the local community. And so it has that effect, though. You're completely right, Lucretia. It has the effect of meaning that a, a conservative special counsel is going to have a hard time getting convicted convictions. And uh, Democratic prosecutors or liberal prosecutors, whatever you want to call them, are going to have a much easier time. Yeah, so I saw with Scooter Libby 50 years peers. ago. Scooter yeah. Libby or Manafort. Yeah. No, I mean, right, but, right. but you, you know, the Mueller did rack up the convictions and uh, Durham has had a hard time. That's but, you know, the, the deeper the deeper reason is because the founders didn't want right defendants being moved out of where they committed the crime and tried in some unfriendly place. But That's, what about if you are in living permanently in Florida, 
With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Why oh, yeah, but you're, you you're usually... It? Oh, usually you do the uh, grand jury and the trial uh, where the crime occurred. So if the crime occurred so in, in case, Washington, gonna, D.C., yeah, well, it depends. I mean, the crime, yeah. the crime that occurred on supposed crime occurring on January 6 happened in Washington, D.C., but the supposed non-crime that occurred in, uh, with the uh, classified documents happened at Mar-a-Lago. So why couldn't you get the whole thing moved to Mar-a-Lago or to damn, You know, I hate it when Lucretia does this, but she's making me open my constitution. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm looking at Again. the because I wanted to double check this. So the Sixth Amendment, this is really interesting. The Sixth Amendment says uh, the accused shall enjoy the right to a speedy and public trial by an impartial jury of the state and district wherein the crime shall have been committed, which district shall have been previously ascertained by law. So um, you're right with with the Mar-a-Lago separate January 6th, I think, is Washington. Mar-a-Lago you could try in two places. And this shows the power of the special counsel in part is to pick where to bring the cases. So the special counsel, this, this new fellow will probably say, um, as the Justice Department has been doing secretly, it's been working with a grand jury apparently in Washington. They'll say the crime occurred in Washington when the documents were removed from the White House, yeah, which occurs right. in Washington. And then they could also have chosen to do it in Florida because the documents are still being held in Florida. So when you have two possibilities, it's really the prosecutor who gets the pick. The only real, so, I think the only real challenge you can make is the one that we've seen in the past where you could say uh, the D.C. jury pool is so biased and they know so much about the case. I, I don't see how people want. That was my next question. Yeah, I mean, that, then you're allowed to argue, move venue. Then you can move venue because you have a right to an impartial jury. Right. And if so, if, they, so if it, too many people know about the case, then it's not impartial. And then you can move. It, is there a possibility, or is let me ask it a different way? Has there ever been a case decided wherein just rank partisanship was evidence of an, a non-partial, non-impartial jury? So this is the. I don't think that you can do it in terms of the entire city of Washington, but you, of course, have the right to do a juror by juror. <laughs> so, right, so, so you can't say just because, you know, this city is so whatever. What did, I'm sure D.C. voted over 92 percent or something for uh, Biden. So I don't think you can say just because of that, I get to move the jury to trial to somewhere else. But, you you know, during Vardir, you know, when you get the right to examine each individual possible juror you're allowed to ask them well yeah, but, but, but I mean, in that case out. the judges the judges uh over 
overruled some of those challenges. Uh, yeah, so you get a the judges number. are so corrupt. Yeah, so you get a certain number where you have the right just to knock someone out, which is uh, called a peremptory challenge. You know, you just have a, you have a right to just eliminate. You don't even have to explain why. Uh, but then there's certain number, unlimited, potentially unlimited numbers. You could say, "I'm not using my challenge, but you judge. You can tell this person's biased, so you should strike them." Yeah, and that's where what you're talking about mm -hmm. will come into effect. I, uh, I, I think this is maybe this is a way to put the final spin on it after Steve and your comments is, gosh, I think Trump would be crazy to go to trial on this, especially given that it's in Washington, D.C. with that kind of jury. Uh, on the other hand, he's such a gambler. This yeah. creates more chaos for the primaries. Right? You get, nobody knows what would happen if someone under criminal investigation ran, because that's never happened before. If Trump were losing in the primary, he might say, let's roll the dice on this one and keep going instead of pulling out like a normal person would. <laughs> I don't know. You could imagine him having a press conference out on the courthouse steps every day after each session of the court, right? And, you know, and of course it would get yeah, okay. massive public. Of course it would be, he would dominate the news. The news. Yeah, show. right. Okay, let's move to uh, a related political topic. But I think as a fan of the show for many years before I was temporarily <laughs> invited to visit, I don't think our show has ever done anything on corporate news and mergers and acquisitions, but it's still related to politics because the if you've been following the news over the last week, it's really not been focused on politics. It's been focused on Elon Musk taking over Twitter and the in complete collapse of the cryptocurrency company FTX. Maybe we'll talk about uh, FTX first and then Musk taking over Twitter. There was a so great- the reason, oh, John, ahead. I was just gonna say, the reason we probably never did that is because Steve just doesn't have the patience for my ignorance on most of these subjects. So why bother? <laughs> well, I, so I, I'm I was gonna struck. let Steve talk. <laughs> I was struck when you called Steve the money guy, because if Steve's our money guy, then we're probably fully invested in FTX. <laughs> oh no, I've stayed as far away from crypto as possible. And actually, uh, you know, we should uh, talk about what people, what the uh, conservative would invest in versus liberals. I'm sure liberals are all the ones invested in FTX because, right? Oh, FTX, yeah. for those who don't know, is a was a crypto. I guess it still exists. A cryptocurrency exchange right. run by a fellow named Sam Bankman-Fried, whose parents are actually both. Uh, in my guild, they're both uh, professors of tax law at uh, Stanford Law School, Joe Bankman and Barbara Freed, quite famous uh, law professors, uh, tops of their field in tax. And so this company, just in brief, FTX is, was a trading platform where you could go apparently and buy and sell cryptocurrency. And then allegedly what happened was that Bankman Freed took the money and sent it over to a trading firm called Alameda Research, which is a hedge fund. Yeah. Yeah. Which you got to know has got to be somewhere around here in Berkeley, right? Why would you call it Alameda? It's got to be around here somewhere. So Alameda, this uh, fund was basically making huge bets with the money in this. It's basically to put it in uh, non-cryptocurrency terms. It's as if Wells Fargo took all our money in our savings deposits accounts and then started trading for its own profit using our money, not its own, our money. And so Alameda made a lot of bets and they all went bad. And so now FTX apparently is billions of dollars in the hole has gone bankrupt. Now, the reason why it has a large political dimension is that Sam Bankman-Fried was one of the largest donors, I believe after George Soros was yep. the largest donor to democratic causes, believed in something called effective altruism, 
uh, where, uh, right? <laughs> is that right? Effective well, altru- as opposed to ineffective altruism, which he well, was against. Yes, right. And his mom put uh, tons of money into things like the whole Molly Ball. You remember Molly Ball's, uh, here's what we did to save the country from Trump. His mom right. was behind a whole lot of that investment. Now, you know, now I'm, I'm sure I'm going to get my Machiavelli wrong, but I'm always in favor of ineffective altruism. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, I mean, when you hear when you hear buzzwords like this, you can usually assume the opposite is the case. I mean, if you actually look at some of the things they backed, it's completely ineffective. But that's a longer separate story. Uh yeah. Look, I mean, there's there's allegations of illegality here. Maybe it was a Ponzi scheme to some extent. No corporate controls. I mean, the the the, the media is now uh, having a field day reporting all this. But there's two aspects of this that I think everyone's missing. Well, one serious one, and one that's just more fun that you hint at, John, briefly. One is, uh, you know, the um, think about what the left said about policing after the George Floyd business: defund the police. And then the next phrase was always. We need to reimagine public safety, mm-hmm. and and you know the uh, the Hewlett Foundation down there, you know, located by Stanford, they had this big project. I don't know if you paid attention to it, John, that Larry Kramer set in motion, the former dean of Stanford Law, right? Mm-hmm. And it's reimagining capitalism, mm. and it's very historicist. I've read the whole documents about this. It's very historicist. It was you know free markets and tax cuts were right for their time. But now we need to reimagine a new model for capitalism. Well, people who actually think that we can will into existence new modes and orders, to use Machiavelli's language, yes. they become Sam Bankman-Fried. We're going to invent this whole new model of capitalism and altruism. We don't need corporate controls. We don't need board meetings. We don't need uh, you know accountants. And lo and behold, we get this. Uh, and so I think this is a perfect example of the left's idea of how capitalism should proceed. And it's ending exactly the way any sensible person would predict. Uh, but then the other thing that's, you know, but it's sort of a piece of things. You mentioned his parents, uh, uh, you know, Professor Bankman and Professor Freed. And then he decided, by the way, can I just say what I want for Christmas is a Sam Bankman Freed Chia pet because of his hair. <laughs> what about yeah, this is going to get Lucretia going, but his style, his, his, point out, his style what? was to have completely unmanaged curly hair and to be completely slovenly yeah. when dressed. Yeah. Uh, did you see the the description of his girlfriend? I don't know what her name is. That she looked like she was the um, playing the elf in a third grade uh, Christmas yeah. uh, play. She's twenty eight years old, but looked about sixteen. Yeah, it's uh, and and had this Not tweet even. about it, it. You know, there are great stories about how they're all on drugs all the time, all hopped up in amphetamines and stuff. And and uh, there's a video I've seen of Bankman Freed appearing on you know, meet the press in one of the Sunday shows. And over the TV, you can see him visibly shaking. I don't think from nervousness, but because he'd taken one too many pills that morning, I think. And he's wow. visibly trembling and, it, you know, from being hopped up. Well, now, here's my point I was going to make about his name. He has a hyphenated name, which he's taken and hyphenated his parents' names. And I think, okay, that's, you know, some married couples do that these days. Um, instead of women keeping a maiden name, they do a hyphenated name of their husband. And it's kind of fading out a bit. But Bankman Freed has brought it back. And I'm thinking to myself, Ronald Reagan did a whole radio commentary, a very funny one about this in the 70s. He said, what happens when two people with hyphenated names get married? Do we now have people with four hyphenated last names? I mean, if Bankman-Fried had kids, are their kids going to be, you know, Loretta, Bankman-Fried, Rosenthal-Smith? Uh, and, you know, what happens to our tax forms? And, uh, you know, how long does it take to take attendance in public school? You know, after two or three generations, you have people with eight or ten hyphenated names. Well, you know, you think about this, it's clearly absurd, 
but it does show you again the pretensions of certain kinds of people like this guy uh, uh, uh and you know you see this a lot and so anyway i think this is as a social comment there's something additionally absurd and preposterous about this person that you know took in a lot of silicon valley smart investors like sequoia capital but there are others who said as I know, John, some people who 20 years ago said Bernie Madoff has to be a fraud. There's no way he's getting those returns. Don't go near him, right? But you know, a lot of people did. Uh, so people fall for this nonsense. But I took one look at Bankman Fried and her. I, I didn't really pay attention until two weeks ago. But if I had paid attention, I'd have said, oh, no effing way. I'm going to go within 10,000 miles of that guy. Just on general principle. Your thoughts? Your thoughts on uh, cryptocurrency? I, don't even I mean, you've been invested in gold for the last 50 years, <laughs> I trust. So you, you, uh, you, you don't care about this cryptocurrency. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Because I, I, I tried to understand how blockchain works. And I've had it explained to me like a dozen times. And it just, it's, sorry. It's like, how do you guys remember that City Slickers the the movie city slickers yeah. with um billy billy crystal there's a scene yeah, in there where he's movie. talking to his his buddy and 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 the buddy he's trying to explain to the buddy how it is that you can record on your vcr and the guy's a moron and he can't get it and and that's me when it comes to these sort of complicated things like blockchain or cryptocurrency i i don't get it I got the, I don't get well, it. I don't want to get it. Can I, so there, so. can I throw in my I, I wouldn't uh, invest in anybody oh, who ahead. looked like him or his girlfriend. So. <laughs> yeah. Can I throw my little bit of political theory explanation of this is that as Steve suggested, blockchain and things like this are loved by the progressives because they are an effort to evade sovereign governments. Mm. It's one of the core things uh, Hamilton reminded us that uh, sovereign governments do. They control the money supply. They control the, they have to have a monopoly of what's currency. Remember Alexander Hamilton took all these um, state banknotes and turned them into basically one federal currency because that's one of the functions of the government. You know, there's national borders, an army and the currency and people who like blockchain and who like cryptocurrency want to create a monetary system that's beyond the control of any government i know that appeals to some conservatives or right, who you know think that oh, governments yeah. deflate, you know have, you know inflate the currency cheapen uh you know cheapen the money supply but i think the, the i think this shows the comeuppance for progressives right the, yeah although you know john I, uh, I mean you just mentioned that libertarians love the crypto world um and yes. It's not just progressives. And part of it is, and by the way, you mentioned gold, Lucretia, you know, gold. I've been watching the price of gold because I have for 40 years now, because it was my very first investment in the mid seventies was gold. Are you of kidding? You and yep. Lucretia are both gold yep. hoarders. I, I bought gold. I bought my first three gold coins in 1976, I think for $149 an have ounce. You, have, you done, how have you done compared to the S&P 500? Over uh, well, years? I mean, I didn't, I didn't, I sold it three years later when gold or four years later when gold reached $800 now. So, you you know, oh, wow, um, you did well. I've been in and out of it over the years, and it's but the price in the last year and a half has been stuck in the mud or even down slightly. And you know, why is that? You'd think gold usually rallies during a yes. return of inflation, and I think maybe it's because libertarians have abandoned gold for crypto, they, they love crypto and they like crypto because they think it's an alternative currency. Except, here's the problem uh, I, I'm not going to believe in crypto until I can buy a cup of coffee with it, right? I mean. 
it's not really. And they were pushing to, in that direction, Steve. I mean, you, there were a lot of things they were trying to push you to buy with Bitcoin. But yeah, I know, but um, it hasn't really broken out as a genuine alternative or rival currency that uh, that makes some sense. It would discipline well, central banks and so forth. But uh, can I just say about a, can I say something about understanding blockchain? <laughs> Sorry, it just reminded me of my late mother when email first started, what thirty more than thirty years ago, and I had it on my laptop, and my mother would say to me. I don't understand how the mail gets out of the envelope and into your computer. So the other thing about blockchain, before I go back to my other point, um, yeah. is that it requires a tremendous amount of, of energy. Oh, yes. To, right. yeah, and so I'm always a little bit surprised that, well, no, I'm not. I sh Let me take that back. I'm never surprised at the duplicity and double standards of the left. Uh, I never, but but you'd think that somebody might have pointed out that maybe maybe because of the uh, uh, huge energy requirements of blockchain, it, it shouldn't have been the uh, yeah. the choice of of the oh, yes. the environmental left. The other thing I was going to say about it, the reason I probably never would have uh, invested in in um, cryptocurrency and Bitcoin is I remember the story about the guy who lost his password and what is it? It was worth something oh. than the the millions of dollars, but because he, he didn't have his password, there was just simply no way for him to get the money out of his wallet. I, the scare quotes for everybody, wallet. And so, uh, you know, do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah, oh, yes, no, no, it's, it's, yeah, it's this is that right, the guy who had hundreds, on his laptop, right? Yeah, yeah. hundreds of millions yeah. of dollars he's lost because he did not make his password one, two, three, four, like you're supposed to. <laughs> <laughs> then he well, would have remembered. That would be me. <laughs> I would put it in my my iPhone and then I lose my iPhone. That's what well. If we're, if we're thinking the same story, is this the guy who's been trying to dig up a landfill in England to find? Yes, a laptop? yes, he's been looking for his actual <laughs> physical computer because yeah, exactly because he, he lost his password. <laughs> but now yeah. he shouldn't feel so bad because he might yeah. his currency might have been with F, FTX and now it's worth nothing anyway. So <laughs> there you go. Okay, and they can take a loss. Lucretia, your corporate news, you have been very excited, we understand, at Elon Musk's takeover of Twitter. Is it because I saw a recent meme photograph that had Twitter before Elon Musk's, uh, Twitter's corporate leadership before Elon Musk, which looked like a beautiful DEI staff at a university. Oh, right. <laughs> and now, and then it said- They woke. And then it said, Twitter leadership now, and it was a bunch of grungy overworked computer engineers all dressed the same drinking coffee and working hard on their computer and all male and asian yeah and that's white. right and all male and asian so yep, what, yep. what what brings you good cheer this thanksgiving season about well, elon musk takeover of twitter first of all um the fact that the left hates him so much is a reason for me to like him uh, <laughs> the, here's the funniest thing so you know i told you guys when i was gonna buy First, the, the Tesla solar system, then the Tesla. You know, I was a little embarrassed about it. I don't want anybody to think I'm some sort of environmental green nut. But, you know, it was a, it was a, uh, it was a economically uh, sound decision from my personal situation. But it was still a little bit embarrassing. But after watching all of these leftists on Twitter saying, oh, God, anybody would buy a Tesla, I proudly, proudly announced that I own a Tesla and uh I don't have to be even a little bit embarrassed about it anymore. So that's the first thing. And it's still a pretty great car, just so you guys know. Uh, the second thing is, I'm still uh, he says he's going, Elon Musk has let a lot of people back onto Twitter and is getting rid of the pedophiles. Mm, and yeah. the, the left's 
uh, meltdown over the fact that he is <laughs> censoring ped censoring pedophiles and groomers and not censoring uh, Trump and anybody else, you know, uh, is that's that's just delicious. Number one, the fact that he's running the place with what fifty people when he had seventy five hundred employees before, and it, and Twitter hasn't crashed, nothing's gone wrong. You know, that's hilarious too. Uh, but mostly it's because Wednesday, I believe it was Wednesday evening, he announced at the request of some some Twitter asker uh, if he would release the internal documentation whereby Twitter agreed to censor all of the information about Hunter's laptop and to stop, for Ooh. instance, any uh, Miranda Devines and the rest of the New York Post's reporting on the, on the laptop. He's he says, in the interest of transparency, he's going to release it all. So I'm pretty mm. excited about that. That'll be interesting to see how that comes down, right? Yeah. Well, and that's going to be fun. Side, yeah, just a side note on that is, uh, you know, we've talked on the show before about how, whether um, big tech and social media should be subject to free speech, you know, should, whether they have to uh, follow some non-discrimination principle but if if uh, this revelation, it might be against Twitter's self interest. But if these revelations show that the government was really urging Twitter and Facebook oh. and Google to censor, then big tech doesn't have this defense that they're just private property anymore yeah. and can do whatever they want. If they're you know acting hand in glove with the government, then they are covered by the First Amendment. And then Trump really does have a good case against them. Uh, that would be that could be that could be a real game changer. Well. And well, so I'd, have you follow? I'm sorry, go ahead, Steve, please. Well, I was going to say, I'd like to see the uh, go further and have the internal documentation of why Jordan Peterson was thrown off, why James Lindsay was thrown off. They've thrown off a whole lot of people. Uh, uh, what's his name? Uh, is it Colin Wright? Is that the evolutionary biologist who's a liberal, but he got tossed off for, for asserting well, the commonplace, uh, commonly held view that you can tell the difference between men and women? He got tossed off Twitter for saying that. Uh, I'd like to see all the internal uh, communications and decision trees and guidelines for that release. That would be uh, that would make for a fun day. So well, would, tell this, me, if you, our, John, oh, if ahead. you've been following ahead, the the case the that's caused uh, both Fauci and uh, stupid Pisaki to have to give <laughs> depositions, it's Missouri and one other state, right, that are are um, alleging that. I, I get I get a little confused about it because I get more caught up in the content than I do the actual legal issues. But I think that they're alleging that the government uh, uh, was part of a conspiracy to prevent the full news about COVID getting out and working with the uh, big tech companies to keep that information from getting out. One of the things that came up in Fauci's deposition was that, oh, I'm too busy, I'm too important to care about the Great Barrington Declaration. So no, I wasn't responsible for trying to keep that from uh, being dis disseminated. I I'm too important to even care about those peons. You know? Ugh. Anyway, so I'm getting off the, my point is, do no, you know no, what the actual issues are? I, I haven't been following that, but it, it actually brings us right to the next topic was that uh, you, last week we talked about what should the Republican governing agenda be? And there's a lot of talk about bringing Fauci up before House oversight hearings. Um, plus, we also saw Fauci's goodbye press conference <laughs> over the last week. And so I thought maybe we start with Lucretia. Um, is this a good idea, actually, for the House Republicans con to conduct oversight on the 
you know, there, there are some people uh, who are saying Republicans need to focus on the economy and not spend much time on oversight. That's a sure way to lose the next election. Um, I, this, I, I, there are so, other people saying they should all have immunity. All the people involved with the COVID response should have an immunity to them because immunity. they're I think doing they should their all best. Be <laughs> hey, sorry. Uh, every single one of them. No, I actually think that in this particular case, that you know the investigations we talked about this kind of briefly investigations are often a waste of time republicans are terrible at them i'm not sure that that you know after the january 6th one we're, we're convinced that democrats are much better but here's the point it's not just the the economic and mental health and all those other uh disastrous outcomes that came from the way uh covid was handled and the lying and the cover-ups and the, oh, the people are too stupid, so we have to tell them X, Y, and Z, even though it's not true, all of that. But the the ramifications of our government pushing those lockdowns and everything else that went along with it are so, in my opinion, so Orwellian and scary that if we don't get to the bottom of how that could happen, and make sure it never happens again, which I think is a perfectly legitimate legislative purpose for congressional committees yeah. to pursue. Uh, I, I think that, I mean, we already saw in this last election that the, just just the, uh, what would you call it, the, the remnants of, of the COVID measures that were put in place in 2020 still are, are with us today in terms of widespread absentee voting in, across many more states than it was before COVID. And, you know, just on and on and on. And, and you're all, I mean, that stupid Fauci, that vile excuse for a human being actually said, oh, if you're not vaccinated, uh, you're going to die during this next winter. Uh, you know, stop already. Stop. Stop with the carrying on about this. Uh, there's a new wave of COVID going around um, my place of employment. Everybody's sick for a couple of days and they come back to work after they get a negative COVID test. Uh, so what? That's what happens with the flu, except you don't have to test for it, right? Uh, I'm, I'm just, I'm done. And I think that they should put Fauci in jail. I think they should put him in jail and deny him cancer treatments mm. like they did to the January 6th protesters. Yeah, Jay okay. Edgar Fauci, as I call him. I, you know, I, I think Steve. there's, by the way, I think you can do more than one thing at a time, John. I think there's going to be big fights between the Senate and the House uh, over, you know, budgets and all that. There may be a government shutdown, all the rest. There's going to be a fight over the debt ceiling. Hope. Yeah, well, that's right. <laughs> it was the, the old Phil Graham line. The only problem with the government shutdown of 1995 is that we reopened it again. <laughs> he, <laughs> he backed away from that later. Like, okay. Uh, look, I, I, you know, uh, I'm, you know, I'm trying to think if there's a good book somewhere of the, I don't know, history or case studies of congressional investigations. I, I actually think that uh, what we're setting a standard that we want like a something like a court trial where you have a verdict and someone goes to prison. That that's not going to happen. But I can think of, you know, going back decades, examples of congressional hearings that actually had some consequence. Politically, you can think of the Kefauver uh, hearings about organized crime back in what 50s and 60s were quite important. On and there, they were trying to expose the FBI's negligence in chasing after organized crime, uh, and that's long been a controversy. Um, uh, certain other uh, uh, the 9/11 Commission, and that wasn't you know I forget how the 9/11 Commission was set up. John, you were around at that time. Was that the executive yeah. branch did that, or was it Congress or? Um, we need something like a 9-11 commission for COVID. 
and it could be a series mm-hmm. of congressional hearings that are coordinated and done in a serious way. Uh, the the Iran Contra hearings now, uh, you know, that's a complicated and you know kind of a mess. But that was a joint House Senate committee. They produced a big fat report that had some value. It didn't do what the Democrats wanted, which was to impeach Ronald Reagan. But nonetheless, that showed that you could uh, you could do a hearing process that generated some real findings. And so I don't know. I think it, it can be done in Benghazi. Uh, well, that, you know, uh, uh, so, yeah, that didn't I mean, that, ever work. And I don't know, I don't know whether that was a failure of the, I, I do agree that there's a certain incompetence of Republicans in running hearings. And I, for the longest time, I, I thought it was worse. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I was just going to say, your, that, your examples of good ones are from a long time ago, Steve. Well, I, yeah, all right. I mean, well, I have mentioned the, well, it's 25 years. So I guess that's a long time ago. Senator Roth's hearings on the IRS were big box office in the late 90s and led to some real constraints on the IRS uh, that uh, Biden is trying to now overthrow with 80,000 new IRS agents. Um, so those are quite consequential, but it, it didn't, you know, it's not as satisfying in a general way as you know, like I say, a court trial finding Charlie Manson guilty and sending him to prison. Uh, so I don't know. We'll see. Um, I'll have one other thought. You know, for years now, I'm not the only person saying this. You watch Republican senators grill Democratic nominees for the Supreme Court. The problem with the Senate is you get, what, five or six minutes to ask your questions. You want to show off. You want to have your own little angle on it. And I thought, you know, if they really wanted to be effective, they would coordinate their questions so that when Ted Cruz finishes his line of questioning, the next Republican senator takes up where Ted Cruz leaves off and stays after uh, the nominee. And that never happens. Doesn't happen in the House either. And it seems to me that that would be the coordination problem to solve if you really wanted effectively to box in uh, – you know, uh, whatever the person or the issue is in the hearing. Can I um, just uh, follow up on Lucretia's point about the uh, Dr. Fauci depositions? Actually, the case is basically what we were talking about. It's a case by a Missouri and Louisiana claiming that there was uh, basically a conspiracy between Dr. Fauci, other Biden administration officials, and the leadership of big tech companies to suppress questioning of COVID. Uh, and the lock, really questioning of the lockdowns and COVID. So the remarkable thing is, as Lucretia has pointed out, is that a, the federal court there in Missouri is allowing the attorney general, who just won actually and is now joining the Senate, but the attorney general of Missouri is being allowed to depose Dr. Fauci and other Biden officials to find out exactly what happened with the effort to suppress speech about I, COVID. I, I mean, we, you know, Steve I think and I, I saw- dealt with that. I'm sorry. I was just going to say, I think I saw the other day that the AP came out and said, well, they didn't really say that uh, that ivermectin was, we, we just kind of recommended against it. We really didn't say that you shouldn't use ivermectin because of ivermectin has proven to be actually incredibly effective when uh, administered early against COVID. But remember, horse medicine and you know they tried to shut down joe rogan and spotify and all of that stuff there's just all of and and there's a lot of information now about young people especially who are suffering very greatly from the vaccines and it just but, but when you put it together it's really ugly it's really really ugly and i do think back to the your original point john we should be investigating how this could happen to ensure it never does again. 
Can I just do one stray uh, thought experiment? Uh, suppose Trump had one re-election in 2020, and we'd had all these anomalies and weird reports about the vaccine and the way the, what, what, how, what would the dynamic of it be right now? I think we know what it would be. Remember Kamala Harris and others saying, I won't trust the vaccine that comes from Trump. Well, if Trump was president now instead of Biden, I'll bet the progressive left would be all over uh, the health protocols and the vaccines and all the weirdness and the mandates and all the rest of that. And, uh, you know, we don't live in that world, but I can guarantee you that's the way this would have unfolded. That's all. Gosh, it's hard to argue with that. <laughs> <laughs> right. Even Lucretia is nodding her head in agreement. <laughs> so one, one last issue before we uh, end our special post-Thanksgiving episode is uh, there's been a lot of movement on the law school front. It's only a matter of time <laughs> before this affects political science departments too. But hmm. you might have seen that um, Harvard, Yale, and then right out of the gate, uh, Stephen R's employer, UC Berkeley Law School, have all agreed, now followed by other schools like Columbia and Georgetown, I, I predict in the end a lot of the top schools will join in, have said they will no longer participate in the U.S. news rankings of law schools. Their claim is that this only encourages law schools to focus on things like LSAT scores of their student or bodies. Or merit. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, uh, employment outcomes, <laughs> and um, to the to to the point where it harms their ability to uh, yeah to have a more diverse student class. And they also said to send more students into public interest, where salaries are lower and uh, jobs are not as uh, plentiful. So, uh, Steve, what do you think of? this uh, <laughs> effort of collusion to destroy U.S. news, one of the great <laughs> oh. establishments of American journalism, but also to stop, you know, to stop the system of rankings. Yeah. I mean, I've always hated those rankings, actually, for everything. I think they're insidious. Really? And, and I, I kind of like but it. But you uh, love the you love Wine Spectator and you love the Scotch <laughs> reviews and you're always giving us the numbers. <laughs> yeah, I know. Steve, but those are everyone knows those American. Are, everyone knows those are totally <laughs> subjective. And, uh, you know, if Robert Parker ranked the uh, universities, we'd say that's interesting, but it's Robert Parker's very Bordeaux take. OK. <laughs> Look, uh, I, think it's pretty, on yeah, I think it's pretty clear what's going on here is the elite universities are anticipating uh, the outcome of the Harvard lawsuit. And they've already, I mean, you know, there's been an intellectual project on the left to attack meritocracy for at least a decade now, a whole pile of books that I, I can't bear to get through because it'll be so awful. Uh, also, would you want to be Heather Gerken at Yale and provide for Yale uh, and be presiding over Yale falling out of the number one spot, which is possible, I suppose. Uh, but if you're going to dump the LSAT and certain other things uh, uh, so that you can continue to discriminate on the basis of race, uh, that would jeopardize your rankings. Um, I don't know. I mean, I think uh, the, the most elite universities, you know, Columbia, Harvard, Yale, Chicago, I don't think their rankings matter that much to students who know they're at the top of the heap. I think that uh, you mentioned, John, political science departments. You know, the U.S. News ranks Berkeley's political science department graduate program as, I think, number five in the nation. No one really cares about how political science departments are ranked, except maybe the graduate students who want to get academic jobs, right? Uh, so I don't know. I kind of hope this is the beginning of the unraveling of a lot of those rankings, because I think they're all pretty so, bad. So here's what I think is an interesting question. If all of this actually, how do I say this? It used to be. Um, and still is the case that people who graduated from places like Yale and Harvard got excellent legal educations. Uh, 
our co-host being one of the finest examples of that. Smart, <laughs> articulate. I don't notes, even think I got one. Legal, right, right, so there you go. I don't I, even I, think I, I got I a good education. About that. You're, I'm very serious about that. However, think about, think about how diversity in other kind, other higher education, especially graduate education, leave aside medical for a moment, the non-professional side of, uh, of graduate education has really undermined the quality of faculty and professors across universities all across the nation. I mean, do you, you guys may not have the same uh, exposure to, to the SBS and the social and behavioral sciences, gender studies, uh, faculty and I mean just some of these people are so dumb so dumb that you, you you really can't believe that they made it all the way through except for the fact that the standards have been completely sort of blown away and replaced by diversity inclusion and equity and so okay we see that ruining generation after generation of, of college students What's going to happen when Harvard or Yale or all those other uh, really highly regarded institutions abandon commitment to academic excellence, which they will have to do if diversity becomes their number one uh, telos, their number one goal, their number one objective. That if diversity is all it means, there's only so much you can do to ensure merit under those circumstances. So so what do you think will happen? Do you think that the law profession will go the way of the rest of academia and just become another mediocrity? And how does that work? That's a great question. I actually, uh, I think contrary to both of you, I love rankings. I think it's the most American <laughs> of things. Top 10 cars, top 10 scotches. I love that Americans rate everything. I, you know, I love that, you know, I can open up the car magazine and read that Tesla is a really bad car as reviewed <laughs> by Car and Driver magazine. You know, I, so I, I find it weird that, uh, you know, law schools think that they should be allowed to prevent consumers, the students, from getting as much information as possible about a decision that's going to cost them $250,000. You know, this is a huge purchase. You think about it, it's as much as buying a house in a lot of parts of the country is choosing where to go to law school. and so I think that competition is good. I think the actually I, uh, the competition between law schools because of the ranking is what keeps them honest, you know, to focus, you know, to disclose what their average LSAT scores and GPAs are in admissions, disclose where the students actually get jobs, how many and what their mm -hmm. salaries are. I think if you, I, I agree, Lucas, if you take that competition away uh, and you sort of wave it all as education is subjective, you wave your hands over it all. Then I think you unleash the ability of these school administrators to play all kinds of games with their social engineering agendas. Mm. So I, I'm I, I'm not against uh, dropping out of the U.S. news ranking system, but I do love the idea of rankings because it's a form of competition. And so I was thinking, like, when you do, do GM and Ford try to prevent car driver <laughs> magazine from getting their hands on cars and ranking them. No, they, I think actually it's also good for the law schools in the end because it keeps them honest. Right. Well, um, all right. You know, that's a yeah. pretty persuasive case. I think what I'd like to see, and I've thought about this myself a few times trying to do it till I realized how difficult it would be is competitive, you know, a competitive ranking um, system. 
right? In other words, we need more people to do the rankings. So the U.S. News isn't the oracle of these things. So, so let me speak to this for just a second because I have some recent experience with it. That Steve's right that U.S. News and World Report is subject to so much manipulation that yeah. it, that, that there are that there are reasons to doubt just how um, how much it reveals about a law school or any other school for that matter. It drives everything we do at my university, partially yes. because we're always at a uh, in competition with that other university in Arizona. <laughs> uh, it's just ridiculous, right? However, right. No, so so this happened uh, to you know to my cyber program. We got notification that I'm going to remember, forget the name of it, academic something. So based on um, machine learning algorithms, completely out of the blue, this particular, I wish I could remember the name of it right now. I, I just can't. I'll, I'll try to remember to tell Steve. Um, found that our cyber program was the number one cyber program in the country. We didn't apply awesome. for it. We didn't send, send them any kind of uh, data. They did it based upon their their standards, and then uh, you know discovered it through algorithms and whatever. And so we brag about that a lot, as you can imagine. Well, we should, sure. right? Because we didn't send information that was padded and and all that other stuff, which is what universities do with U.S. News and World Report. And then when you become high up in the ranks, there it becomes even easier to sort of play their game. However, I so I'm sort of caught halfway between Steve and John on this. I do like the rankings, but they're and and Steve's right. We need more options for where those rankings come from, so that they're just not manipulated by the the, the usual schools at the top. That, so that's can what I, I would say. Just one last thing about the law school rankings is there are other rankings, and actually professors, so students pay a lot of attention to U.S. News rankings, but I think professors pay a lot of attention to the rankings put together by a fellow at Chicago Law School named Brian Leiter, oh, who also right. ranks yes. philosophy and political theory. Yes. And, right. um, so he uh, ranks almost purely on scholarly, what he calls scholarly impact. And I, I, your guys are probably going to disagree about this because this, uh, this is obviously an imperfect measure of quality of law schools. But what he does is he uh, looks at how many times the faculty is cited yeah, he goes through every professor and counts up all their citations. We have the online database, you know, Westlaw, which allows you to do this. And so he just said, and he says, look, I admit, you know, citations themselves are arguable about whether they show anything, but they do show something. And so faculty actually pay a lot more attention to his rankings and ignore U.S. news and actually student. But I think that's actually probably more because it shouldn't matter. You know, like one of the factors in U.S. news, I think, is basically the tuition you charge, <laughs> you know, the mm. higher, the better. Uh, and yeah. that's not as important as you, as I think we would all acknowledge is how, uh, how, how good are the faculty you're studying with is probably the biggest influence on how, now, whether that's reflected in citations or not is a totally different question, but because you guys went to graduate school and you picked where you went because of the, right, that you would study with certain people, not what the name of the school was. Yeah. And I, th I would hope law schools become more like that too. No, I think they we'll will see. become more like that. We'll see. Well, it could okay. be, you know, it could be just, it's like a relay race, you know, at John. No, 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 don't, no, you're taking, no, <laughs> no. come on. You're ruining my, my closing. No, stop, no, that was a prompt. Stop. stop. <laughs> that so, was a prompt. Before we finish our traditional ending, uh, any uh, Thanksgiving comments or wishes either you like to make at the very end of our show or hit coming up on the one hour mark? I'm very <laughs> thankful for our 15 and a half listeners. 
for the comments. No, no, you're not counting the new Italian listeners we've added in the last week. Well, I'm definitely very thankful for my Italian friends because because they're just the most delightful people I think I've ever met. So I'm very thankful for that and thankful. I'm thankful for you guys. It was sure great to see you. Steve, what are you thankful for? Yeah, I'll just, I'll just Steve. add that uh, the experience last week we had uh, is a promises of reversal of, um, remember Churchill's old line that the new world will come to the rescue of the old world? Well, I'm starting to think the old world is going to come to the rescue of the new world. So, oh my God, I'm moving. <laughs> that happens. <laughs> I mean, you know, Europe's a nice place to visit, but I wouldn't want to live there. <laughs> okay, so let's uh, close it out with our traditional endings. I like to think, give thanks for Kamala Harris for providing yet another good ism. She was, she, you know, she was in a lull there for a few weeks, you know, hiding out in the basement and saying nothing, but she's back better than ever. So um, always drink your whiskey neat. Let's go, Brandon. And this week's Kamalism, which she uh, provided at a White House, uh, a White House event. And the way that I think about it is, you know, like relay racing. You know, you race and someone passes the baton and then, right? So that's what life is. It's basically a relay race. And so the people who are heroes, whichever gender they are, they ran their part of the race and then they passed us a baton. And the question is, what will we do with the time we carry the baton? Which means there's no time to get tired. I mean, come on, right? (laughs) I mean, come on, right? (laughs) Even the White House press office had to put in the transcript that there was laughter (laughs) (laughs) all right john you're you're overseas next week i think so we're gonna miss you right yeah Uh, sorry i can't join you next week but uh enjoy a lovely uh, time in rome thank you thank you and i hope you got to uh you invited uh, maybe the punster will replace me while we'll we'll do something we'll figure out something i don't know oh anyway bye-bye everybody bye everyone Join the conversation.